and everyone else can hand them in. Yeah, yeah. My policy, but this is not majority policy at Brandeis, so don't take me as yeah. exemplary, is I would rather have um, a better paper than an on-timer paper. Um, so if another day or two or three will make your paper better and you want another day or two or three, that's fine. Hand them in. Are you, are you giving the I want to work on this longer look? No. <laughs> okay, so you're satisfied with that. I will remember as I grade it. How'd they go? The papers? Thank you. Hi. Um, I was sort of thinking like it would also be mean to give you a quiz today, but are you ready for one? No. No? <laughs> Depends on what it's over. <laughs> some people, some, some of you, maybe even some of you wrote this on your, on your evaluations, but some people in, um, in the Western canon last term where I was actually pretty flexible about whether people were ready for quizzes or not were actually upset when I didn't give the quiz on the day announced. Are you kidding? No. Oh, my God. Well, they came to class and everything at 9 a.m., uh, and then no quiz. They just felt that was so unfair because then they had to come to class again, the very next <laughs> class, to take the quiz mm. that they'd gotten up early to take the class before. No, but again, my idea is I would rather have you spend another day um, actually doing the reading than not doing the reading, failing the quiz, and then never reading it. Um, so how many people want the quiz today? Comus, right? yeah, and Lycidas. Um, and how many people don't? All right, I'd say, um, I would say that that um, the Union Busters win. Um, so, all right, so we will have the quiz Wednesday. Comus is not that long, but you'll also have L'Allegro and El Penserosa to read, so that's about another 300 lines. So it's still not that long. I mean, compared to your Spencer reading... This is like a walk in the park, a sleepwalk in the park, right? Isn't it? No? Paradise Lost, there we get into, into some uh, substance, some, length, <coughs> some lengthy substance, some extended substance, as Descartes puts it. Um, but I think you're getting a little bit of a break. I hope you're feeling like you're getting a little bit of a break. Um, okay, how'd the papers go? <coughs> Happy, unhappy... Unhappy. Unhappy. All right. Middle ground. Temperance. Kind of. Kind of a guyon um, attitude towards the papers. All right. Um, we, let's go on with Lycidas. Um, have people actually finished Comus? Um, so you are all ready for the quiz, and yet you don't want it um, because you want to reread Comus. That's great. Um, all right. Well, let's go. Let's go back to Lycidas, and um, what we can do is uh, <laughs> what? So many people have goals. <laughs> yeah. No, I do too. Um, oh God, we infected you against people. Yeah, I think. 
many infections, many infections are against people's will. <laughs> zinc tablets if anyone needs them. Um, what we can do is, is uh, talk about comas if we get there um, a little bit later today, although it's, it's somewhat dubious that we will. Um, but certainly comas and then both L'Allegro and Il Penseroso on Wednesday, and um, we'll start Paradise Lost on Thursday. We're actually, if we start Paradise Lost on Thursday, I think we're okay syllabus-wise um, uh, because of that extra catch-up week that we gave ourselves. So we're actually not doing nearly as bad as, um, as it may have seemed to you at first. Um, Arthur has come and helped us, and um, I don't know who Arthur is in this case, Fred Lawrence, maybe. Um, <laughs> but I don't know how, but that's okay. That's just like the Fairy Queen. Um, and, um, and, and I think we'll be okay, at least for a while. Um, the thing that, if you have read Comus, what you'll know is, and what you'll see in L'Allegro and Il Penseroso, and what we already started talking about um, when we started with Lycidas, is that Milton really likes arguments in poems. He really likes putting things, um, putting the case strongly for both sides. Milton was a great reader of Plato. Um, Plato is um, of extreme importance in Milton's thinking. Um, in Milton's thinking um, everywhere, in his prose, in his poetry, in his thinking about politics, in his thinking about reality, in his thinking about um, art, um, Plato is always there. You will see that in Paradise Lost, Raphael quotes Plato. Um, Adam asks Raphael what goes on in heaven, and Raphael says, well, I have to tell you things, I have to tell you in a way that um, you will understand on earth, which is an image, but maybe not an accurate image of what happens in heaven. Um, in Plato, in the famous allegory of the cave, um, the idea in the cave is that what we see are shadows and projections of items that are themselves copies and cutouts and silhouettes of the reality outside the cave. So we're, we're, we're um, many, many levels away from reality, says Plato, when we look at the things of this world, um, of maya or illusion as the Indian philosophers put it, um, who, who draw from the same source as Plato. Um, the reality is very different, um, but has some connection with its fourth or fifth fold reduplication as shadows on the wall of the cave. Um, that's a very important idea for Milton. But at any rate, Milton, like Plato, is really interested in dialogic argument. He's really interested in making the case, letting both sides have a powerful way of making their case. Milton is, um, in a way that Spencer isn't, Milton is a dramatist, which is a little bit odd to say because uh, Milton basically wrote two, he wrote more, but two dramatic works of real importance, Comus and um, Samson, and very few people are ever tempted to stage either of them. Um, they're not actually, Comus um, apparently was quite spectacular when it was first staged, but that's partly because the whole idea of a mask in Milton's time from Johnson on was that it was, a, that it was the 17th century version 
of, um, of digital effects. That is, there were just amazing amounts of money went into producing stunning um, effects on stage. And a whole lot of what happens in masks have to do with the visual effect in them. Um, if you just try to stage it the way you can stage Shakespeare with just actors on a bare stage, um, Milton's not quite as powerful. Um, he is a dramatic poet. He thinks dramatically, but he thinks dramatically in ways that um, appeal to thought rather than to humanized interaction. Um, that is, what you don't get in Milton are very many characters with foibles. That's all you get in Shakespeare, where every character is interesting and foibled. Um, the word foible means weakness originally in the French. Um, that is, all their characters have their endearing or not endearing weaknesses in Shakespeare. In Milton, the characters represent, as they do in Plato, very large claims for the truth and for how things are. And um, so in Milton, you get, like in Plato, you get a dramatic argument between vastly different perspectives. In Comus, it's between Comus and the lady. Um, they represent the two vastly different um, arguments for what the world is like and what virtue in the world um, would be. Comus may be lying, but, but look at his argument. Forget his motives and look at his argument. You have to do both, um, but his argument has to be taken on its own merits. Um, the same is true, as you'll see, in L'Allegro and Il Penseroso, where it's not the case that one of them is right and one of them is wrong. That is, L'Allegro del Penseroso is essentially an argument, a very old argument between comedy and tragedy, um, which is the greater comedy or tragedy, which is the um, ultimately the um, more, which is more truthful to um, the moral um, meaning of the universe, comedy or tragedy. That's an argument that goes way, way, way back. Um, it's an argument that goes all the way back to Aristophanes, you could say, who was making the argument for comedy as against the Greek tragedians. Um, he makes fun of the tragedians for being too much downers. Um, L'Allegro no Penserosa stages that argument, um, and it's worth seeing how that, um, how that happens. Milton has, early on in poems that we won't be reading, uh, Milton has a famous poem called On the Morning of Christ's Nativity. <laughs> that is a Christmas morning poem which is how wonderful um, Jesus was born today. Um, but then he also has a poem called On the Circumcision, which is how painful God is wounded for the first time. Um, and then he has another poem called On the Passion, in which he um, attempts to um, write about Jesus' crucifixion. And then the poem is headed, this poet turned out to be above the poet's years when he attempted to write it. So Milton basically publishes an unfinished poem about how he couldn't write about the passion um, because it was too sad. So the birth of Christ is comedy, the death of Christ is tragedy. Which is more important? Those are questions that are going to come up again and again in Milton. In Paradise Lost, this question comes up as the Augustinian 
question of the Felix culpa. Does anyone know what that phrase means? Not you, Dino. Felix culpa, a very important phrase. No one? No one's taking Latin? Not you, Vino. Um, in James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, the main character, the main male character, known by his initials HCE, which sometimes stands for Here Comes Everybody, and sometimes stands for Habeth Children Everywhere, <laughs> and sometimes stands for Humphrey Chipton Earwicker, um, is, whether rightly or wrongly, accused of a sexual malfeasance in Phoenix Park, which is the largest urban park in the world. Um, it's the park in Dublin. Has anyone been there, Phoenix Park? It's great. You should go, when you're 21, you should go to Dublin and have um, a genuine Guinness in Phoenix Park. Um, real Irish Guinness on tap is Liffey water unfiltered, so you shouldn't have too much of it because it will kill you. Um, but a little of it is quite amazing. Um, Liffey is the river that flows through Phoenix Park and through Dublin. Um, and um, Joyce is very interested in the Guinness's slogan, which they've re revived recently, which is Guinness is good for you. For Joyce, in his punning way, that comes out as Genesis is good for you. Um, that is the book of Genesis. Um, but HCE, Humphrey Chipton Earwicker, who may or may not have committed this sexual indiscretion in Phoenix Park, is known then as the Phoenix Culprit, which is a pun on Felix Culpa. Felix Culpa, what does it mean? It means guilt, know? happiness. Guilt, it happiness. Happiness is guilt. Guilt is happiness. It mean, yes, and it's an idea in Augustine known as the happy fall, or the happy fault, or the happy crime or the happy guilt. And the idea in Augustine is it was really bad that we ate the apple. Augustine, by the way, was the first person to blame all of us for eating the apple, not just Adam and Eve. Um, we're all guilty of what they've done because that's how we came to be, is they ate the apple. Um, and that's why we are so interested in having, in not being chased, because um, the experience and the sin of the apple has been transmuted into us, transfused into us. Um, but because of this sin, God does this amazing thing, which is sends his son to earth to save us. God so loved the earth that he sent down his only begotten son, as St. Paul says. And that's incredible that God did that. We would never have known how much God loved us and how much Jesus loved us if we hadn't sinned. And so at the end of Paradise Lost, you will see that when Adam is given a vision of the future, he stands in doubt whether now to regret the sin that he's committed or not. Um, because he stands in doubt whether to accept Augustine's view that in the end, it was better to have sinned and to be saved than never to have sinned at all, to alter a phrase from Tennyson. Um, better that this that it happened this way, which do people know the parable of the prodigal son? Anyone? What is it, Tony? Um, I know it's in Luke. 
Okay, yeah. That's ample. I know. Literally, it's done. Okay, so as was the prodigal son. Um, the prodigal son, so a man has a bunch of sons, and most of them are good, and it's only two? Yeah, it's only two. Yeah, well, two's a bunch. Um, <laughs> But where's the where's the line then better that one prodigal return than ninety nine? That's the sheep. Yeah. Okay. But it's That's, isn't it, it's isn't it the same? Se- it's the same there's section. Like yeah. The sheep, the lost coin, yeah. and the prodigal okay. son are all right the there together. To the older brother was to say, "You should be rejoicing for that was nothing taken away from you." Yeah. Okay, but that's at any rate. Yeah, that's the other <laughs> way of seeing things. But there's great rejoice. The prodigal son goes off um, and uh, goes to college and parties all night and never calls. And then spends all his dad's money. And yes. spends all his dad's money um, because he misses all his meals. Sentences the fatted calf to a nasty death. Yes. Um, but then he returns, and there's more rejoicing at his return than if he had never gone. So the idea is that to sin and then to repent... Um, doesn't leave you in a that if you repent you shouldn't think well I'll repent um, but still I'll never get over what I've done that the rejoicing in the repentance and the return of the prodigal son um, to the father um, is fantastic and wonderful and therefore if you're a sinner don't think that um, you can never make it right again in fact, if you attempt to make it right, there will be great rejoicing in heaven. So that idea that the rejoicing is greater than if you hadn't sinned at all, um, that idea is the idea of the happy fall, the Felix culpa. The Fe- fortunate fall? Is it also Yeah, fortunate fall. Hap- yeah, Felix literally means happy, as right. in felicity. Um, and culpa means sin, as in culpable. Um, but the fortunate fall is another um, another phrase for it, another way that it's described. Um, so there's a debate in Paradise Lost, then, um, where Adam himself will stand in doubt. Um, was it a good thing or not? Um, would there have been this comedy of salvation without the tragedy of sin? Um, or could you have the comedy without the tragedy? Um, does the, is it the tragedy that gives meaning to human experience? Or is human experience, is comedy enough for human experience? That's going to be a debate that you will find over and over again among Milton's characters. And you will find that debate um, incessantly shifting the meanings of its terms as any, reasonable, as any real debate does. That is, debates are only interesting if both sides have to redefine some of the things that they start with. Um, so in Comus, the spirit of comedy, well, a question you can ask about Comus is, which of the two, the lady or Comus, is really the spirit of comedy? And I'll just give you a little background about Comus, then we'll get back to Lycidas. Um, the background about Comus is that the Earl of Bridgewater had just been given his new position. Um, which was to go to, which was Lord of the Marches, and he was installed in Ludlow Castle, and this was a big celebration for this. And he had a daughter and two sons, and um, what Milton did and um, uh, was wrote this mask. There was also music, um, uh, great music. A lot of these songs were actually sung as songs. Um, 
support the mask. And the mask is essentially, the story is, the children are trying to get to Ludlow Castle where their parents await them to celebrate this new position and this new life um, that they have. Um, their father, the Earl of Bridgewater, was a judge and a very temperate judge and a very wise one. He was actually a very good guy um, who took great care in certain very famous, at the time, famous cases of rape and of sexual malfeasance um, to take the side of the victims even when the victims were raped by aristocrats. And in particular, there was a case where um, a lord raped a serving girl and then denied that he'd done it and said she was a liar. And she complained. She, was, she wouldn't be shut up. Um, but he tried to destroy her. And Bridgewater um, investigated the case very carefully and found out that she was right and um, punished the lord, which was a fairly unusual thing to do. He may have partly been um, um, thinking about these issues because <coughs> his wife's brother-in-law, um, three years earlier, had engaged in a series of extraordinary sexual depredations um, in his own household, basically raping everything that moved. Um, and this was a gigantic <coughs> scandal about three years before Comus was written. Um, far enough away from Bridgewater that it's that he was in, he was in no way implicated, nor was his wife. But it's interesting to know that um, it might seem weird to you that chastity should be the subject of a story in which the star is a fifteen year old is the fifteen year old daughter of the house. Um, but there might be a kind of tip of the hat to this family for all the good things that they've done. One of the questions that we'll be asking as we read Milton is sexist or feminist? Um, we ask that question implicitly or maybe even explicitly reading, um, reading Fa The Fairy Queen and looking at Britomart. Um, and now we can ask the same question about Milton as well. Um, Milton is certainly praising someone who you would not expect him to praise given his political um, views seven years later when he's on the side of the English Revolution against the aristocracy. Um, the Earl of Bridgewater was given his position by King Charles, whose execution Milton would later defend. That is, King Charles's execution. Um, but Bridgewater was one of the good guys among the aristocracy, um, good guys in the political situation that Milton was arguing. And also in 1634, when this mask was performed, a good guy um, just in moral terms. So that gives you, that, that, that gives you some interesting context um, and certainly makes Comus, who's a rapist or a wannabe rapist, um, a um, date rapist at least, he's trying to get um, the lady to drink something that will um, allow him um, to have his way with her. Um, Milton is certainly um, not on Comus's side um, when Comus finally loses it. The question is, what about earlier? Um, Comus has some good arguments when he's trying to seduce rather than rape or date rape the lady. Um, and those arguments don't just um, ignore them, um, but look at them. They're going to come back 
in Paradise Lost in a way, in an unexpected way, those arguments are going to come back in Paradise Lost. Um, and at that point, you can ask which, which one represents the spirit of comedy, the lady or comas, which one represents the spirit of tragedy, if it is comedy versus tragedy. Um, it might be better to say that it's comedy versus anarchy. Um, but I think both sides in comas think that. That is, both sides make that claim that they're on the side of comedy and the other is on the side of anarchy, um, where anarchy would be a bad thing, um, just to be clear on that. Um, and um, the question, again, in comas is... Um, which one really is on the side of comedy? Um, it's or I guess the way to ask the question, as you reread it for Wednesday, is is comedy really opposed to anarchy, or is comedy anarchic? Is comedy, by its very nature, anarchic? Um, in a way, that's the issue that comes up in comas. In Lycidas, the debate is, you could say, a debate of life against death. Um, that is, ultimately, what the shepherd is asking is, how is this fair? How can this be fair? That's the debate. And so as he goes along, he says, how did this happen? We're, we got to around line 50. All we have now is loss. And then finally, at line 50, he begins to ask. He started at line um, 21 or so. Begin then, sisters of the sacred well. That's um, uh, the invocation to the muses. Then finally, at line 50, <coughs> he says, but where was everyone? How could this happen? Where were those who should have protected him? Where were ye nymphs? when the remorseless deep closed o'er the head of your loved Lycidas. So he's calling upon the muses, but now he's saying, where were you when Lycidas, <clears throat> whom you loved because he was a poet, he knew himself to build the lofty rhyme, where were you when he drowned, when the remorseless deep closed o'er the head of your loved Lycidas? <laughs> For neither were ye playing on the steep where your old bards, the famous druids, lie, so you weren't on the hills that the Druid poets um, are buried in, whom you loved, nor on the shaggy top of Mona High, nor yet where Diva spreads her wizard stream, I, me, I fondly dream. So all the places where you might have been able to intervene to save Lycidas, you weren't there. Where were you? And then he says, but I'm dreaming had ye been there, for what could that have done? What would the muses have done even if you had been there? You couldn't have done anything. Poetry does not save lies. Excuse me, it does. It saves lives. It doesn't save lives. Um, had you been there, you couldn't have done anything anyhow. For what could that have done? What could the muse herself that Orpheus bore the muse herself for her enchanting son, whom universal nature did lament when by the route that made the hideous roar his gory visage down the stream was sent, down the swift Hebrus to the lesbian shore. 
So what muse is that? Does anyone know? You know, I know. Anyone else? Undergrads? Grad students taking the course of credit? Auditors? Calliope. Calliope, the muse of? Uh, epic poetry. The muse of epic poetry. So Orpheus, the great mortal or demigod poet, is um, said to be the son of Calliope, the muse of epic. And Calliope could not save her son when he was torn to pieces <coughs> by the Bacchante. Um, if you look at Paradise Lost, can you recite it? I can do the last part of it. You can't do the whole invocation? Oh, come on, dude. What was the point? <laughs> I can do the first two. No, just start. I'll, I'll prompt you. Descend. Uh, descend from heaven, Urania, by that. Louder, name. louder. <laughs> you, do it, you did it so well in my office. Come on, loud. Stand up, stand up. <laughs> He's a senior, it's okay. Uh, don't sing. <laughs> he knew you. himself to sing. Yes, yeah. but. Descend from heaven, Urania, by that name if rightly thou art called, whose voice divine following above the Olympian hill I soar above the flight of the Gaian wing. Meaning not the name I call, for thou nor of the muses nine, nor on the top of old Olympus dwellest, but heavenly born before the hills appeared, or fountain flowed, thou with eternal wisdom didst converse, wisdom thy sister, and with her didst play in presence of the Almighty Father. <coughs> Pleased with thy celestial song. Up led by thee into the heaven of heavens I have presumed, an earthly guest not and drawn and drawn Imperial, imperial air with like thy tempering thy tempering with like safety guided down return me to my native element lest from this flying steed as unreined as once Bellerophon though from a lower climb dismounted on the Elaine fields I fall erroneous there to wander and forlorn thus half half yet remains unsung yet narrower bound within the visible diurnal sphere not standing above standing on earth standing on earth not Wrapped, not wrapped above, above the pole. The, the pole, more safe. More safe than. More safe, I sing, with mortal voice, unchanged, to horse or mute. To horse or mute, though fallen on evil days, on evil days, though fallen and evil tongues, in darkness and with danger compassed round and solitude. Yet, yet not alone. Yet not alone, seaside to wander where the muses haunt, clear spring or shady grove or sunny hill, slip with the love of sacred song. Is that right? Um, no. No. <laughs> um, you, you went into book three. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's true, though. I hadn't noticed that. Yet not alone while thou visits my slumbers nightly. While thou visits my slumber nightly and, and or when morn. When morn purples the east. Still. Um, still. Still govern thou my still, song. Still govern thou my song. Um, Urania. Urania and fit audience find though few but drive far off the barbarous dissonance of Bacchus and his race of revel and his revelers the race of wild rout um, who the race of wild rout who tore the Thracian who bard who tore the Thracian bard and Rodope that's what Pope is um, where woods and rocks had ears to rapture till savage clamor drowned both harp and voice um nor could the muse defend her son, so fail not thou who thee implores, for thou art heavenly, she an empty dream. 
All right. Wow. So that I was. Cannot do that. I cannot do that. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like just don't even expect it. Oh my god. So that was three years ago, right? Awesome. Yeah, yeah. that was the English eleven. You chose to write a paper. <laughs> <laughs> See, do you remember your paper? Yeah, I was going to say, I can't remember this site. <laughs> <laughs> that was just awesome. Okay, so notice what he does at the, in the invocation of Book 7, the, se- the second part of Paradise Lost, which is the part that takes place on Earth rather than in Heaven, with one exception. There's one, th- there are two exceptions. There's a little bit in Hell and a little bit in Heaven but almost all of the second half of Paradise Lost is on earth, and that's how he begins, saying, descend from heaven. I've been in heaven, but now to earth, descend from heaven. Um, he says to his muse, um, come to earth, let me sing about what happens on earth, um, and help me find a fit audience, though few, famous phrase in Milton, fit audience, though few, phrase that, many, 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 many writers down in the second or third million on the Amazon um, sales ranking have quoted to themselves, not least me, uh, fit audience though few, um, but drive far off, I'll just repeat it for you, but drive far off the barbarous dissonance of Bacchus and his revelers, that is the drunken um, crazies who tore the Thracian bard in Rhodope. So they saw Orpheus and they were beside themselves. He um, had a um, Real Madrid shirt on and they were all Manchester United <laughs> fans. And they killed him. Um, where Woods, so they tore him where Woods and Rocks had ears to rapture because Orpheus, his singing was so beautiful, says Ovid, that the woods and rocks came to listen. He could move even trees and rocks to listen to his music. But they tore him to bits till the savage clamor of their, um, of their bloodlust drowned both harp and voice, drowned both the sound and also they, they threw him, they beheaded him and threw him into the river Hebron. So he was drowned in water like Lycidas, drowned also, his song was drowned out. Nor could the muse defend her son. Calliope could not save Orpheus from this destruction. Nor could the muse defend her son. And then a line, will, a pair of lines will return to, so fail not thou, he says to his muse Urania, so fail not thou who thee implores, do not fail the one who implores you, for thou art heavenly, she an empty dream. So there's that dreaming again. Calliope didn't exist. Why couldn't she save Orpheus's life? Because she didn't exist. And yet, somehow, that doesn't mean that Orpheus didn't exist. It means that Calliope became a dream, turned from being a muse into a dream, much as his latest spouse at Saint did. I waked, she fled, and day brought back my night. She too turned out to be an empty dream. Adam wakes to reality. Arthur wakes to the truth. But 
Milton and Orpheus wake to an empty dream, and what they find is night and death. Okay, so the muses here too, he is dreaming. Um, what could you have done if you were there? Ah, me, I fondly dream, he says. Had ye been there, for what could that have done? The muse herself that Orpheus bore couldn't save him. The muse that bore Orpheus couldn't save him. And so he says, so notice the logic of how this poem goes forward. Milton's um, music is so um, overwhelming, even if you don't find yourself overwhelmed by it, you are. Um, Milton's music is so overwhelming that, that it can sometimes be hard to see how, what's causing the transitions in his thinking and in his argument. But here's an important one, um, which is the muses couldn't save him. Muses cannot save lives. Poetry does not save lives. So he now asks, alas, what boots it with uncessant care to tend the homely, slighted shepherd's trade and strictly meditate the thankless muse? So is there any point in being a shepherd composing poetry? And now he's not saying, you know, oh, what a shepherd is, is we live a caref carefree life and we just play our songs on the oaten, on the oaten um, reed and it's all fine. Um, what he's saying is, no, being a shepherd, that's actually hard work, which it is. Um, that's hard work, but work that you might pick in order to give yourself time to think about poetry. Any of you who go for an MFA, um, these lines will describe your lives as you're working in Pizza Hut and writing your, um, your, your fiction or your poetry. And here he asks, what? No, it's going to happen. Alas, what boots it with uncessant care to tend the homely slighted waiter's trade, and a shepherd's trade, and strictly meditate the thankless muse. And then he says, were it not better done as others use to go to B-school, to sport with Amaryllis in the shade, or with the tangles of Neera's hair. That is, wouldn't it be better just to spend your time actually having sex with women? Um, plural. To sport with Amaryllis in the shade. Or with the tangles of Nerea's hair. And then he gives an answer to why people do this. Why do people work so hard to write poetry? It doesn't save their lives. But he gives an answer, but he gives an answer in order to dismiss it. Fame is the spur that the clear spirit doth raise. So the reason people do this is they want fame. They go through all this hard work in order to become famous. Um, do you guys know the Roaches, the band the Roaches? They're good. You should listen to them. R-O-C-H-E, as they insist in their introductory song. Um, they're good. Okay, anyhow, they have a good song about fame. Dear Mr. Selleck, can I have my job back? It's actually about, can I become a waitress again? Um, I tried to be famous, but it didn't work. Um, I'm glad you're writing it down. You should listen to it. It's on YouTube, I'm sh I feel sure. Um, At first I thought you were talking about Archie and the Hitchabell. No, that's a different roach. Um, fame, he explains why people might become shepherds. 
Fame is the spur that the clear spirit doth raise. And then he says it's that last infirmity of noble mind. So fame is even if you have a noble mind, you may be tricked by love of fame. It's an infirmity. It's a weakness. It's a foible. It is, it is fame that spurs the clear spirit to scorn delights and live laborious days. So the self-sacrifice of being a poet comes out of infirmity, not out of virtue, but out of weakness, the desire for fame. That's what causes people to scorn delights and live laborious days. But the fair guerdon, when we hope to find, when we hope to get the reward for all this work, and think to burst out into sudden blaze, to become suddenly famous, comes the blind fury with the abhorred shears and slits the thin-spun light. So you work really hard to be famous, and just at the point where you think you might make it, <coughs> your life is ended by the fates, by the blind fury with the abhorred shears, and your life is cut off and slits the thin-spun life. But not the praise, Phoebus replied. Now, if you have, a, if you have um, an edition of Paradise Lost, which I think you do punctuate it as Milton punctuates it, there's no quotation mark before the word but, Quotation marks didn't come into English to, to um, show quotations. They actually had another use, and they weren't called quotation marks. They're called inverted commas. Uh, quotation marks begin in English in the, late, in the early 17th century. Do you have a quotation mark there? No. I had a professor in Morocco who always called them inverted commas. Yes, that's the British, yeah. proper and British. And laughed at him. Because none of us had ever heard that. Yeah. I had to learn quotation marks. Yeah, no. I had never heard of quotation marks. Yeah, that's an Americanism. It's, a, it's, it's supposed to make it easier for you to learn punctuation if you call them quotation marks. Um, they're actually inverted commas, and that's a yeah, and that's a and that's a typographical name for them. Um, and they can be used as quotation as marks of quotation, um, but what they are are inverted commas. So inverted commas were not used to indicate quotation. You saw that. You're used to that in Spencer. Um, it, but they're not used to indicate quotation until really the beginning in, in English language, until the beginning of the 18th century. Um, so that allows certain effects, again, effects that Joyce will pick up on, which is you don't realize that someone else is speaking the last four syllables of that line, the last four words of that line, but not the praise. So the fury comes and splits the life, but not the praise. Phoebus replied. So suddenly Apollo has heard this shepherd and replies to him. Where did Apollo come from? We don't know. But again, if you see this cinematically, and Milton is a very cinematic writer. That is, he's always suddenly cutting to something or showing you something in the background that you hadn't noticed. Suddenly Apollo is there, but not the praise Phoebus replied, and touched my trembling ears. Phoebus goes on. Fame is no plant that grows on mortal soil, nor in the glistering foil set off to the world, nor in broad rumor lies, but lives and spreads aloft by those pure eyes and perfect witness of all judging Jove. So God will appreciate your poetry, even if other human beings 
don't, even if your audience, your fit audience may be none except Jove, except God. And he, in perfect witness of all judging Jove, as he pronounces lastly on each deed, of so much fame in heaven expect thy meed. So write this poetry and you will be rewarded in heaven, Phoebus says to the speaker. And he doesn't quite seem to buy that, but he does, it does allow him at least to think Lycidas will get a reward in heaven. That what happened to Lycidas may find its reward in heaven, if not on earth. So notice the structure here is Lycidas and I are both poets. Lycidas was a great poet. He died. That brings home to me what happens to poets. Poets die. Pointlessly. So why be a poet? Since the poetry you write can't do anything. Then Apollo comes in and says, well, you get rewarded in heaven, which allows him, both terrifies him, he's trembling as Apollo speaks to him, touches his ear, but it also allows him to think, well, maybe that's where Lycidas is, getting his reward in heaven. So now he turns again to the stream, Arethus, which is one of the streams sacred to the muses. O fountain Arethus, and thou honored flood, smooth sliding Mincius, crowned with vocal reeds, that strain I heard was of a higher mood. So Apollo spoke. But now my oat proceeds. Now I return to pastoral again and listens to the herald of the sea that came in Neptune's plea. So he's accused the gods of showing indifference to poets. Then Apollo comes, and now Triton, the herald of the sea, comes to say why Neptune isn't guilty of what's happened. He asked the waves and asked the felon winds, what hard mishap hath doomed this gentle swain? So Neptune said, why did this happen? and question every gust of rugged wings that blows from off each beaked promontory. They knew not of his story, so Neptune didn't do it, and none of his minions caused the death of Lycidas, until finally, and sage Hippotides their answer brings, that not a blast was from his dungeon strayed. The air was calm, and on the level brine, sleek Penope with all her sisters played. So no one blew Lycidas to his death, but what caused it was that fatal and perfidious bark built in the eclipse and rigged with curses dark that sunk so low that sacred head of thine. So what caused it was the ship that you were in. Um... That ship was built in the eclipse and cursed and awful. Nature loved you, but this man-made ship was the cause of your drowning. Yeah. No, okay. Next, Camus, reverend sire, went footing slow. Camus, the spirit of Cambridge. His mantle hairy and his bonnet sedge, inwrought with figures dim and on the edge, light to that sanguine flower inscribed with woe, that is the hyacinth. Um, the hyacinth is said to... Um, in Ovid, if you look at the hyacinth, it it's, it's appears to have the Greek letters on it, alpha iota, that is I, hence hyacinth. Um, I is alas in Greek, 
um, as in many languages. Aye, aye. Um, another flower sacred to Apollo. The sound of mourning. The sound of mourning. Like to that sanguine flower, the bloody flower inscribed with woe. Ah, who hath reft? Asks Camus. Quoth he, my dearest pledge. And then last came and last did go the pilot of the Galean lake. That is St. Peter himself has now come. So we've gone through all the gods and now we come to the Christian saint. Two massy keys he bore of metals twain, the golden opes, the iron shuts amain. Where have we seen something similar? Um, Garden of Adonis. Garden of Adonis, good. He shook his mitered locks because he's a bishop the first bishop of Rome, and stern bespake, how well could I have spared for thee, young swain, in now of such as for their belly's sake creep and intrude and climb into the fold of other care they little reckoning make than, to, than how to scramble at the shearer's feast and shove away the worthy bidden guest. So St. Peter says, I wish you had lived and all these people who are parasites and come to the sheep, sheep shearing feast when we the feast after shearing all the sheep that the shepherds have, um, and just um, they're the they're the sheep shearers feast crashers, <laughs> um, starring Adam Sandler and Emily Blunt, um, and um, he says I could have done without them <coughs> in order to save you. They shove away the b- worthy bidden guest, blind mouths that scarce themselves know how to hold a sheep hook or have learned aught else the least that to the faithful herdman's heart art belongs. What wrecks at them, what need they? They are sped. And when they list their lean and flashy songs grate on their scrannel pipes of wretched straw, the hungry sheep look up and are not fed, but swoln with wind and the rank mist they draw, rot inwardly and foul contagion spread. Besides what the grim wolf with privy paw daily devours apace and nothing said, but that two-handed engine at the door stands ready to smite once and smite no more. So St. Peter comes and says, um, I can't believe Lycidas was the one who died and all these crooks and criminals survive um, who don't feed their sheep. Here he's talking about, as he says in the head note, the corruption of the clergy. Because clergy, you know that bishops carry... Um, you know the the um, staffs that bishops carry they're they're um, crooked at the end. Do you know why? Sorry, because they're shepherds of the people. Um, that's why pastoral care is something that bishops give to their flock. The idea now is not only are shepherds poets, but they're also the people who should be taking care of members of the church. But the church in England is entirely corrupt. Lycidas would have been different. The hungry sheep, the people of England look up and are not fed. We're in allegorical territory here. So it's a world where St. Peter says the death of Lycidas just shows how bad the world is and how corrupt the church has become. Um, We're about to draw back from that allegorical moment. Return, he says, that dread voice has fled. But he uses the death of Lycidas to make this allegorical complaint about the corruption of the church. And the hungry sheep look up and are not fed. That's everyone else, the common people. All right, uh, quiz for sure on Wednesday. I feel very cheated. Why? Have you turned off the machine? Yes. Okay. No, I mean, I wish you could finish it.